The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.deroshi-meyer.org. Allow me to pray one more time. Father, I thank you that you are exalted over all, that your Son is exalted over all. I pray that we would encounter holiness today, that we would have a taste of your glory, that our hearts would be elevated to the point of praise, that we would understand better your purposes in redemption, working all things in a way that would magnify your Son in the greatest way. Help me as I teach. Draw us in to your throne room of grace. We are needy. Thank you that you are a faithful God, ever kind, ready to forgive. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. This year we are focusing on the book of Isaiah, but not all of Isaiah. Our focus is specifically on the texts that I believe most directly anticipate Christ. That most directly portray Him. And so we're going to be hopping through the book. Last week we were in Isaiah 2, and today we're in Isaiah 6. We can't cover every chapter. Every bit of it anticipates Christ in various ways. But I've chosen certain texts that I believe will give us a glimpse of Christ in the Old Testament in distinctive ways. Already we've seen a number of features that I want you to just keep in your mind as we're reading through the book. Righteousness. Justice. Garden imagery. The flourishing that will come at the end of the age. Yahweh is warrior and is holy. The fact that God will work His Justice through His royal servant who would rise at the end of the age. And through this servant, bringing more justice and overcoming all evil. These are features we've already seen in in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And we're going to continue to see them over and over again. Today we're going to look at a passage that most of you are very familiar with. It's the only place in the Old Testament where we see holy show up three times in a row. Holy, holy, holy. This is what Isaiah heard when he got shot into the throne room of God. In Hebrew, holy is made superlative simply by putting an extra holy with it. In Isaiah 26, a passage many of you are familiar with, we see an example of this when it says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Well, perfect peace, there's no word for perfect there. It just says you keep him in peace, peace. 
Super peace. Perfect peace. But now, now, in the presence of this great God, these winged creatures, they're called the seraphim, and they are only tagged that in this text in the Bible, with six wings, they're flying around, proclaiming over and over again, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah gets to witness this. He gets to see something. He gets to hear something in a way that he's never seen or heard it before. And it changes him. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 6. You've got it on your sheet, or you can look directly in your word. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4 right now. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Notice that L-R-D is not all caps. So what does that mean? Anybody? It's not Yahweh's name. If it was Yahweh's name, it would be in all caps. L-O-R-D, like we see in verse 3. So, if all we see is Lord in lowercase, then we're talking about, we're, we're using the term for sovereign, master, and he sees him seated on a throne. It says that he was high and lifted up. Now that little phrase shows up three times in this book. The next time is in Isaiah 52.13. Isaiah 52.13, where it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he. This royal servant, and Isaiah 52.13 is the start of the fourth servant song. Israel as a people is called the servant in Isaiah, but then there's a special representative of those people who's also called the servant. And Isaiah 52.13 leads us into Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And in Isaiah 52.13, we're told, that one, this servant, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne. He was high and lifted up. Jesus said, no one has seen the Father except the Son. But Isaiah saw the Lord. He was high and he was lifted up. So who is he seeing? I think he's seeing the pre-flesh Son of God. The eternal God, the Son of the Trinity, I think he's getting a glimpse of him. And when we get to John 12, a little bit later this morning, we're going to see that's exactly what John says Isaiah saw. The very Son of God, seated on the throne, 
high and lifted up, exalted over all. And yet then, in Isaiah 57, 15, we see that the use the second time, Isaiah 57, 15, where the Lord, Yahweh, says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I will dwell in the high and holy place. And I will dwell also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The one who is holy, lifted up over all, is willing to dwell with those who are not high at all. But we live in a world that is filled with lots of people who think they're very high. Pastor Jason's citation of uh, Tom Cruise. Why don't you believe in God? Because then I would have to submit myself to someone else. I would no longer be morally autonomous. If there was a God I recognize fully, I would be responsible to Him and He not to me. But I'll have none of that. We have a God who is high and lifted up. It says, The train of His robe filled the temple. We hear of no priests, none, whoever saw anything that even resembled a robe in the temple of the Lord. I'm going to put a picture up here if it chooses to come up. There we go. This is the tabernacle. The temple was structured the exact same way. So the tabernacle is the movable tent where God sat enthroned. The temple is the building they made to replace the tent that would finally be stationary. And the temple was simply twice the size. All the dimensions are doubled in the temple that Solomon built. And that's the temple that is structured in Jerusalem where Isaiah is ministering. But it looked like this. There is an altar. All the white space is the, the court. And people would enter in in order to encounter and enjoy fellowship with God. They'd enter in from the east. And there was a curtain there and they would come through the curtain into a holy place. But then you've got the building and that's the temple proper. And when Isaiah says, the train of his robe filled the temple, I think that's what he's imaging. Not this whole structure, but specifically the building. But it was flowing out of the throne room, which is the, the holy of holies, the most holy place, and the train was flowing out of the central area where the Lord was seated and flowing into the temple. Now, we'll only grasp this if we recognize that temple and palace are exactly the same word in Hebrew. So what we call the temple where Israel would go 
and what we call the church, the temple of the living God. Jesus is the temple, and if we're in him, we become the temple. What we're saying is it's the palace of God. He is seated on the throne of our hearts. That's how it's supposed to be. And when people see us, they see him being imaged, displayed. What we value is what God values, and people get to know God as they look at us. What God's involved in, we're involved in. And when they see us, they see Him seated on the throne of our lives. The church is to be putting this God on display. It's a palace. The temple was a palace, and that's why it uses the language of the throne. And the train of the robe was filling the palace. Now, what this suggests to me is that Isaiah is not in the temple made with hands where God's presence showed up like a glory cloud during the day and like a pillar of fire at night. No, he sees someone seated on the throne who actually has a robe and it's flowing out throughout the entire building. What this also suggests is that Isaiah, who's on the outside, got brought into the inside where the priests alone could go. And this is a dangerous spot because he tells us he's unclean. So the unclean is now encountering the holy. And it was never supposed to happen that way. Holy, holy, holy. That's what they're singing. These winged creatures. Above him, the one who was seated on the throne, stood the seraphim. Saraph in Hebrew means to burn. So, most likely, he's using a a descriptive term to unpack these are the glowing ones, they're burning ones. These may be the exact same creatures that we saw that are called cherubs, cherubim. The cherubs were put outside the Garden of Eden. At least one of them with a flaming sword in his hand. Now, these might be the same creatures, or they might be distinct. But he uses a term that that identifies them. They're the glowing ones, the burning ones, the fiery ones. And yet, their very presence is redirected. They're all declaring, holy, holy, holy. This language of holy is something that we are all familiar with, we hear it, but what is it? How have you come to understand what holiness is? Anybody want to be brave and offer some definitions before I give mine? Brother David? Okay. Totally different from anything I could ever imagine. That's, and, and that could only be said of one. There's a uniqueness about what is holy. A distinctiveness that is separate. If there's anything else that is holy, it's because it in some way is associated with God. Others. Okay, often, now, you actually were 
helpful there. How many have ever heard, holy means set apart? Okay. Often when that's described, it's set apart from something. Which means holiness is not something. But that doesn't give it content. But to say set apart for identifies the uniqueness and a purposeness. Set apart for something. We would have to ask ourselves set apart from what? Is holiness bound to creation? Meaning, could God be holy before there was creation? And if so, in what way would it be a set-apartness? Absolute purity. There's another definition. Holy, holy. Unique, unique, unique. Set apart for, set apart for, set apart for. Pure, pure, pure. We're, we're coming in. Unpack that. Resurrection. Okay. So, that somehow holiness relates to resurrection. That raises the issue again, though. Is there only holiness when there is sin? That's what the cross does. It overcomes sin. Okay. So identifying that resurrection is about a new creation. It's about a connection with what will be where we get brought into the very sphere of God's uh, essence. We get, we get brought into the Holy of Holies Resurrection is the very means that allows that to happen. So there we're just recognizing a distinction between, as you already noted, that even the fact that there is creation makes a distinction between the Creator and that which came from Him, and that holiness is associated directly with God in His, in his essence. And power. Just, I mean, oh, we could have gone to so many texts. Only the bottom one is in Isaiah. But Holy One is used over and over again. Multiple times. I I should have counted how many times it shows up in the book of Isaiah. This is a big deal for Isaiah. This encounter he had, and the fact it's comparable to Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. How that just revamped his entire thinking. Jesus is the resurrected Son of God. I know. And every time he talks about Jesus, it's like he's got this vision in the back of his mind. This encounter that Isaiah has controls all the rest of his preaching. And when he talks about the Lord, it's like, I've seen him. I know him. I've encountered him. He's touched me. And he wants us to feel an encounter and be drawn in. Here's some texts of those who encountered this God. Who is like you, O Yahweh among the gods? Who is like you, says Israel, after the waters parted, they went through and all the Egyptian army was destroyed underneath the sea. Who is like you, 
Oh, Lord, who is like you among the gods, majestic in holiness, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds. What's coming out of that holiness is glorious deeds, not just deeds, but there's glory that's attached to those deeds. And it's coming forth from the Holy One, who's majestic in holiness, doing wonders. Here's Hannah. I love Hannah. Such a picture of weakness, made strong. She's called a prophetess. She's barren, but she trusts God. Rather than becoming despondent, her brokenness leads her to trust. And as she puts her faith in God, hope is generated. And it gives rise to a son. God brings Samuel and she proclaims, There is none holy like Yahweh. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. None holy. None holy. However we define it, it can't be connected with anything else. Anyone else. Anyone else that's declared holy like a priest or anything like a temple is such because of its association with Him. None. Holy. This is about who He is in His essence. Your way, O God, is holy. It's an overflow of who He is, and we could tag it holy. What God is great like our God? To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him? Don't look anywhere else. Don't compare me with anything else. I am distinct, unique, excellent. And of no one else could you say such things. Holy One declares. The Holy One declares. So, as I'm working through these texts, and it's not easy for me to figure it out, but at the most basic level, I just want to say, holy is the Godness of God. When we think of what makes him God, in contrast to everything else, it's, it's holy. It's holiness. It's, it's not an attribute. It's essence. It's what gives rise to everything else. This is his being. My name is holy, he says. Be holy, for I am holy. Holy, holy, holy. It's the reality and value of God's fullness. It's not just who He is, it's the value of who He is. Because it, it, it includes that element of, of excellence and, and delightfulness. This is why glory is always associated with it. So I understand glory to be God's holiness going public in a visual way. It's our encounter with holiness. And here, the text says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And that holiness is manifest in an omnipresent way. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Now, it's possible, and and 
it's challenging. The, the Hebrew isn't super clear, but this would be the only place that we actually find in our Old Testaments or in Scripture where it actually says God's glory is already filling the earth. Because what we actually see over and over again is that, that it's a promise. God's glory will fill the earth. It will be put on display. So, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit to understand which Isaiah meant here. But there's an association between glory and holy. So, this, this reality of God's fullness, this value of God's fullness expresses itself in the way that God needs nothing else to keep Him going. That's part of His uniqueness. It's part of His excellence, His self-sustainability. Right now, all of us, moment by moment, are being upheld by the word of His power. And He will keep speaking until the end of the age and beyond. We will ever be upheld by Him and Him alone. And many will be upheld in hell for an eternity of pain by Him alone. And yet, there's no one speaking to keep Him going. It's part of His holiness, His self-sustainability. But not only that, His absoluteness and soulness, meaning that there's no one comparing with Him. This too is part of His holiness. There's only one God. There is no one besides me. Holy, holy, holy. If we, if we could see what Isaiah saw, if we could hear what Isaiah heard, it should move us to tremble. It should awaken a fear within our hearts. Work out your salvation with fear, with trembling, for it's this God. Holy, 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 who's at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Holy. His excellence and worth, the reality and value of of his fullness expresses itself in excellence, in, in worth. This is where Christian hedonism is birthed. The reality that an encounter with the holy creates an awakening in our soul. Fresh desires for something new. A heart is changed, to reoriented, to value different things. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. No one can serve two masters. He'll either love the one and hate the other, or he'll despise the one and love the other. This encounter with holy that a is is just part of his makeup. And even before creation came, there was an inner delight in the Trinity. Three persons, eternally, God, enjoying the excellence of one another, the worth of each member, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, enjoying holiness reflected called glory. Delighting in each other's glory. Let me have the glory that I had with you before you sent me to earth, Jesus prayed. Glory. 
The beautiful harmony of all of God's acts with his fullness. That everything that comes forth from God flows out of the value and reality of who he is. It's in harmony with it, not against it. It perfectly aligns with his excellence and worth. It identifies his absoluteness and soulness. It's directly upheld by his self-sustainability. Every act of God working to preserve and display his holiness. That's what Pastor John has defined as God's righteousness. God's righteousness relates to God's working right order in this world wherein he is shown supreme as the only holy one. And that passion to preserve and display, display holiness is glory. To sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. When we sing those words, let your heart be elevated that we have a God who dwells exalted and on high and who also dwells with the contrite and lowly. Let your heart be put in its place that you recognize your unworthiness and stand in awe that you've been invited in. Isaiah saw something amazing. The Lord seated on the throne. He heard something amazing. Holy, holy, holy. And it says, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I think probably this means the altar of incense, which the book of Revelation says is filled with the prayers of the saints. The altar of incense is right outside the curtain. Right there. And the entire house was filled with smoke, suggesting that there's an awakening of of prayer or praise from the worshipers of God. And it's shrouding the glory, 
He's having an encounter. There's a shaking. And it hasn't even... So it's like the, 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 the fires are rising. And all that he's done is hear angels. It's all he's heard. Angels declaring, holy, holy, holy. And it's making the threshold of the temple shake because of the profession of praise that's going forth. He hasn't even heard the voice of God. He's heard angels singing about God. He's seen the one seated on the throne. And it's doing something. It's effecting something in his context. And then... And then we read, verse 5, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's interesting that this is Isaiah's call, as we're going to see. This is the, what happened first in his life. Before chapters 1 through 5, this happened. But it's placed right here, I think, in order to give us a context for what it means, I live among a people of unclean lips. Chapters 1 through 5 unpack for us the sea of debauchery that was Judah. The brokenness, the minimizing of God, the minimizing of His holiness. And Isaiah's transformation at this point in the book seems to invite the reader in so that what happened to me could happen to you. If you had eyes to see and ears to hear. If you could encounter the glory that I saw that very well may be filling the entire earth, depending on how we read verse 3, whether it's a future promise of what will be or what is, If you could just grasp a taste of the one who is seated on the throne, who's upholding us right now, it would change you and you could be healed. You could be saved. Notice what he says. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, I am lost because I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've seen him, and he's not like me. Holy, holy, holy. But then, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now the whole house was filled with smoke. So this is either the altar of burnt offering outside the building, or it seems more likely because the smoke was just mentioned and it filled the entire house that it's from the altar of incense. It's been offering a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I'm not certain which of these altars it is. One would be prone to think that it's the altar of burnt offering because it's actually going to deal with his sin. 
But remember, this is not the earthly tabernacle, which was but a picture with the blood of bulls and goats. No, this is the more heavenly ultimate reality, and that's what the writer of Hebrews says. That's the location where Jesus would enter, not into a tabernacle made with hands, but into the ultimate tabernacle where God is seated on the throne, into that tabernacle to make a sacrifice for sins. So is this an anticipation of the guilt offering of Isaiah 53 that would be applied, accomplished in the future, but applied in like reaching back into Isaiah, forgiving him, forgiving Moses, forgiving Abraham, forgiving Ruth, forgiving Hannah. The only way that they're ultimately forgiven in the Old Testament is because of what Christ would do on this altar. A coal touches his lips, and he hears these amazing words. Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. This week, Teresa and I were meditating on the high level of fear that many in our culture are having right now. Fearing the wrath of a king. Unsure what will happen under the new Trump era and what the implications will be. Grieving deeply of the fact that in the words of some that Teresa read, what if he stops abortion? What if? And viewing that as horror. And I just, I said to her, there is a judgment that is coming of a greater king. And if they could just have eyes to see, how would they respond? What kind of fear would be awakened? Isaiah saw this God seated on his throne and it awakened desperation. It awakened terror that was overcome by mercy. I didn't track the argument for why it couldn't be the the burnt altar, but... um, But again, I I want to ponder it further. Ultimately, he encounters holy and he gets cleansed. And there's hope there. Hope there for him, hope for those that are in his world. And yet, we come to this next part. And has anybody heard a mission sermon on this text? Who will go for me? Here am I. Send me. Period. And then the sermon goes on. But what Isaiah gets called to is, is amazing. So let's, let's go in a little further. Look at verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, The very Lord who was seated on the throne, whom shall I send who will go for us? Now, he may be talking about the heavenly council, where the seraphim would have been a part, or he may be talking about, this may be anticipation of of the Trinity. 
It's not super clear. But it's coming out of the heavenly throne room. And the question is, who will go? I have a mission. Who will go? And Isaiah has... This is what prophets do. They get brought up into the heavenly council and they get commissioned for a task. And he says, I'll do it. Whatever, wherever, whenever. Tell me what. Here am I. Send me. And the Lord, who is seated on the throne, said to him, look, with it, look at the text, Go and say to this people, which people? I live among a people of unclean lips. That's the people, I think. Tell this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. That's what he says. Keep looking, but don't have eyes to see what you're actually seeing. Keep hearing, but don't understand the significance of what is going to be taught. Isaiah, I want you to make the heart of this people hard, dull. Make their ears heavy, make their eyes Blind. That's a weird mission. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and be healed. This is not a mission of salvation. This is a mission of punishment. Keep living in your blindness. Keep refusing to hear the significance of our God. That's this prophet's mission. Keep looking for glory, but don't see glory. Keep listening to things that are true, but don't accept them. Lest you actually turn and and find your hearts healed from the brokenness that Chapter 1 said was so apparent. Remember? Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Do you want to be healed? It's going to take you surrendering. But don't surrender. Continue to be resistant. This this teaching shows up many, many times in Isaiah, and we're going to look at that in just a second, but notice how Jesus uses it. Why are these people not listening to me when Jesus shows up on earth? In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you'll indeed hear but never understand, you'll indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Even in Jesus' day, he's seeing a fulfillment of Isaiah's mission. Here is what John says. Therefore, they could not believe 
all those that Jesus was teaching to. Why? For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes. Look at this one. You will indeed hear, but never understand. That's just stating a fact. But now we get volition on the part of the Lord. A movement of his will. He has blinded them. He's hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And that's talking about Jesus in that text. John is saying Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him in Isaiah chapter 6. He saw the Lord, and the people wouldn't hear. Elsewhere, we read in the parallels in Matthew, to, to the Matthew text, this one, we say this is why Jesus spoke in parables. So that they would hear, but not hear. The disciples needed help, and Jesus revealed that help to them, but to the rest, he spoke in parables. Brother David? You're right, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it said, A veil is over those who refuse to hear the gospel because the prince of this world has blinded their eyes to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But this seems to be, I think John is saying, God has blinded them. Let me, let's look over here at Isaiah 29. Just turn in your Bibles. Oh, I've actually got it up. Here it is. Astonish yourselves. This is now Isaiah the preacher fulfilling his mission. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured upon you a deep, a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, covered your heads, The vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. Hear this. Isaiah is a prophet who's writing down his message, but it's as if his book is closed to them. It doesn't awaken. It doesn't change. It doesn't alter their inner being. It's like a sealed book. And that's what God purposed it would be. This is one reason why I say the Old Testament was written for Christians. And it's more understandable to us than it ever was to Isaiah's audience. This is not an ancient word. This is as true and as living as any of the Gospels and any of Paul's letters. But then notice what he says. Well, when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, read Isaiah's words, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. It was not understandable to them, meaning, I think, it didn't awaken within them. They might be able to hear the words, but it didn't change them. They didn't have an encounter with holy when they read this book, like Isaiah had an encounter with the holy. When you hear the gospel, or when you proclaim the gospel, Some people will respond with hardness, whereas others will all of a sudden be awakened. They'll be able to see in ways that they had never seen, hear in ways they'd never heard. 
Verse 18 moves beyond the days of Isaiah to a future day, the day of the Lord. And look at what he says. In that day, that's where we're living today. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. God set as judgment for Israel's hard-heartedness that they would remain blind. So we read, What if God, desiring to show His wrath, to make known His power, holiness, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, Israel under the Old Covenant, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. God sent Isaiah to set a stage for Jesus. Isaiah's ministry made it increasingly dark so that when the light came, it would be all the more beautiful. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. People like Hannah, Rahab, Isaiah. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. This was Isaiah's ministry. Now there were some who would listen, but as a whole, it was judgment. How long, O Lord? How long do I have to preach this way, Isaiah asked. Just look at Isaiah 6. Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is desolate, the garden will be burned. The oak with withered leaves will be chopped down. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remains in it, it will be burned again. Fire will overcome like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Period, quotation marks, commentary by Isaiah. The entire forest has been burned down to a single stump, and the holy seed is the stump. That's how long you will preach. This will go on until the holy stump rises. When all of Israel gets boiled down to one, And we're going to read in Isaiah chapter 11, which is where we're... No, Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going next. Isaiah 11, it's going to start, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So Isaiah is envisioning a ministry that is talking about the story of redemption. The hist- it's talking about history of redemption. 
and saying that there will be a season of a proclaimed judgment by the prophet until all of Israel, all of Judah, gets burned down to where all that's left is a stump. And we see that in the exile. The exile of Israel, in 586, they get destroyed and they never return to power. Even when they return to the land, they are desperate so that they call themselves slaves. But then in the fullness of time, one born under the law, born in Bethlehem, is raised up and light begins to shine again. But even in his day, the hardness that Isaiah proclaimed continued on, continued on, even into the ministry of Paul. He was carrying on the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. But he also didn't end there. What if God extended wrath for a season in order to make His glory, His glory, seen by vessels of mercy? The holy, holy, holy God will let the whole earth be filled with His glory. But it will happen in a way that the one seated on the throne called the Lord, gets the glory. It'll work in a way that the lowly will be raised up, but only in light of their connection with the stump. The garden will bloom again, but only because it'll start with one single shoot. Turn with me back as we close to chapter 4. Verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion after the judgment has come and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Chapter 6 ended by saying the holy offspring is the stump. And the very use of offspring is A question mark. Is it one offspring or is it offspring many? And this book identifies the King, Holy Messiah, Servant Jesus, who's identified with God the Father Himself, who is Yahweh. He is holy, establishing around Himself in this elevated Jerusalem. We looked at this text last week. Jerusalem elevated. God seated, not simply on a single throne inside a temple, but now all of Jerusalem becomes the place where the glory cloud sits. That's Isaiah chapter 4. And all the people are gathered in, identified with the Holy One through the resurrected Son. That's where Isaiah is going, and that's why I think John was able to say, he saw Him seated on the throne. The vision The mission was a hard mission. It's different than the mission you and I have today. We proclaim, but many continue in the hardness that Isaiah predicted. But the garden is also growing, and all of us are sprouts. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy are you, O Lord. The whole earth 
is becoming full of your glory. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, your name is being proclaimed. Let us be a part of it. Help us grieve over the ruin that is around us. And yet, may we proclaim peace, happiness, words of hope. May we call people to fear God, to tremble rightly at the King that is above all kings. Thank you that where you are is peace. Give peace to our hearts. We thank you for King Jesus, elevated and high. We want to follow him. Through him we pray, our holy God, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.